Amen. Well, good morning. So, it may seem like it's a simple verse, but there's a lot more to it, right? Um, Be sober-minded, Peter's writing here. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. It's interesting there when you look at the the habits of the lion, right? The lion roars when it's uh, conquered its domain by making a kill, right? It roars to let everybody know that you may smell what's just been killed, but it's mine and all mine, right? So he's devoured something, but he's always looking for the next thing to devour, right? That's kind of what you get in here. He's already devoured something. He's looking for someone else to devour. In other words, he has an insatiable appetite. You know, we talked last week just briefly that, uh, you know, he wants to keep us ignorant and unaware of his presence in the world. Last week, Jason talked about that Satan is the deceiver who just targets our mind with lies. And today I want to talk about Satan is the destroyer who targets your will with pride. He's not speaking from something that he wasn't taught himself by his own pastor, Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. C.S. Lewis kind of perfectly stated this in this way. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. I love that. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by the devil. Meaning we're in a battle. We're in a battle, as he says, for every square inch, every second that's claimed by God and counterclaimed by the enemy. The devil attacks our weaknesses, there's no doubt. The lions tend to prey on the sick, uh, the injured, the isolated, right? And the elderly, right? Those that are out of the the norm of the pack, right? They tend to focus on them, the, the weakness in people and the weakness in their prey. But he also focuses on our strength sometimes because that's when we're actually the most vulnerable because we don't even know it and recognize it. It's interesting, though, that Christ, and Paul talks about this, so Peter says he's a destroyer, Christ said he's a destroyer, and Paul comes in in Ephesians, we talked a little bit about it last week, Pastor Jason did, about the armor that he gives us. And it starts off in that passage in Ephesians 6, it says in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord, not weak in the Lord, strong in the Lord. Weaken yourself and your dependence on yourself Strong in the Lord, in his strength, of his might. Why? Because in this epic battle in the universe, the battle, the Bible tells us, is the Lord's. He goes on to say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Do you get that? The cosmic powers over this present darkness, this world is engulfed in darkness. The only way it sees past all that is through the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've talked about that, right? Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works, right? So they may what? Give and exalt God. Goes on to say, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the, in the evil day. And having done all that to stand, stand therefore. It's interesting because this whole picture at the time is kind of lost on us when we talk about the armor of God, right? There's several things that comp- comprise the armor of God. I'm going to pull out a few of them to you today. Uh, the first one I'll talk a little bit about is the shield of faith. So this is a replica Roman shield. Oops, we'll come back to that. The interesting thing about the shield, it guarded all the main parts of the body, right? And let me tell you something. I have the whole replica set of the Roman you know, armor, and it, it, I didn't have Clint bring it down because it's heavy, right? You had to be a man's man to be able to be in the Roman army, man, because it was some heavy stuff. And to walk around and wield a shield. The interesting thing about the, the Bible, it says that the shield of faith will distinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy, right? So this shield here wouldn't be a battle shield. It would have been a parade shield. It would be about the same size. But what they would have done is wrapped it in leather. And what they would have done with the leather wrapped in leather, they would have wet the leather before going into battle, which made it really heavy, right? So they'd soak the leather so that when the arrows did come from you know, the enemy, they would be extinguished on the shield. They wouldn't have to discard it and find themselves vulnerable. It was sort of the idea of preparing for battle got more than just putting on the armor. It got preparing the armor for the battle. The interesting thing, it talks about having that breastplate of righteousness, which is really kind of interesting. It's something that protected the vital organs, right? It's the righteousness of God, not our righteousness, because we know our heart's desperately wicked above all things, right? So it's protecting ourselves from ourselves in some regards, right? Because left to ourselves, we always move away from God, not towards God. And when we look at ourselves, we see, if we see our own righteousness, we get prideful, right? Which I think is the fertile ground for all sin. One of the cool things, I think, in the armor is the helmet. Now, the helmet is like many things, right? It lets everybody know whose army you're in, who you're fighting for, just by the helmet alone. If you would have saw this in that day, everybody would have known you're a Roman soldier and you belong to Caesar. The same is true when we put on our helmet, the helmet of salvation. We are God's, and we should be fighting for him in his service, in his army. That's why we put on the helmet. It protects our mind. It protects how we think and what we look at. One of the other things it talks about is the, the, the belt of truth. It's interesting about the belt of truth. It kind of holds everything together, right? I think, you know, we're all probably glad we have belts on today, especially you guys, because if I didn't have a belt on, it would be pretty bad, right? <laughs> but the belt held everything together. It held the, uh, the breastplate together. It held your loin uh, uh, guard together. It's the place where your sword was at. All the things held together with the belt of truth. That's that idea of obedience, right? So as we obey the truth and we put it together, it holds us together in essence, right? And then there's the shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. It's really interesting when you look at these shoes. One of the great mysteries was how fast the Roman army could move. If you look at history, and I was a, at War College down at Fort Benning, Georgia, when I was in the army, one of the things they talked to you about was the speed of battle. And one of the advantages the Roman army had was their ability to travel long distances in a very quick period of time because of their shoes. They had these shoes, these sandals that were made with these little like studded grommets in the bottom so they didn't wear out and they were able to go over all kinds of ground without getting a lot of foot injuries so they were able to get to places quicker than the enemy thought. 
So the enemy would see them coming and say they're two or three days out, and then they'd be there the next day and catch most people unprepared. Kind of a little interesting thing that you really don't think about. It also talks about, when you look at it, um, the sword of the Spirit. The interesting thing about the sword of the Spirit, here's a replica Roman sword, pretty ominous tool, meant for thrusting. It wasn't a a jousting uh, sword. It had all these little things on the end. They would smash people on the heads or to the face. It was a pretty devastating weapon. And in this context with Paul, he's really not talking about a sword like this. He's talking about the Word of God, how it is a sword. It's the only offensive weapon that we, God gives us when it looks at it. That's why when Jesus was tempted in the desert, what did he use to repel the devil? The Word of God. I think sometimes that's a difficult thing for us in this day and age because Bible literacy is at an all-time high, and I wonder how high it is in the church, how much scripture we actually really know that we can recall in the time of need to address the attacks of the schemes of the enemy. Are we wielding our little bitty pocket knife? Are 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 we using a sword as God has equipped us with? The whole, full brunt of scripture. It's a powerful thing. The Bible says it divides truth, people, opposition. It's a powerful tool, but we'll come back to that in a minute. It's interesting because, you know, we have to recognize the devil is a greater theologian than any of us will ever be. And you know what? He's the best theologian, and yet he is still the devil because he doesn't believe. He knows it. He doesn't obey it. He doesn't put it into practice. But he uses it to do what? The very thing that we get from God to defend us against him and to repel him, he uses against us. Isn't that interesting? Kind of makes you think a little bit of different about the passage and what's going on right here. The interesting thing is we have all this armor. It says, Pull all, put on the full armor of God and you'll be able to stand. The issue for us is why can't we stand all the time? Why do we fall victim? I think the Great Wall of China sort of gives us a clue there. It's a gigantic structure that costs an immense amount of money and labor over time. It's a, one of the wonders of the world. It's one of the only man-made structures you can see from outer space. When it was finished, it appeared impregnable. Yet, three times in history, the wall was breached. Not by breaking through it, or getting over it, or conquering those in it. It was breached because why? Because they were able to bribe the gatekeepers. It's interesting, Emerson Falstock said, in referring to this historical fact, he said, it was the human element that failed. What collapsed was character which proved insufficient to make the great structure men had fashioned to really work. Isn't that true? The same could be said for the armor of God. It was its character that proves insufficient to make the great armor of God unable to work. I like what This quote was my favorite this week. I shared it with my growth group. Satan's successes are the greatest when he appears with the name of God on his lips. 
You know who said that? Mahatma Gandhi, a polytheist, still believed in the devil. It's interesting because John Piper talks about how pride becomes the fertile ground for all sin in the Christian life. We're all vulnerable to that. And he says this, in our proud love affair with ourselves, we pour contempt, whether we know it or not, on the worth of God's glory. As our pride pours contempt upon God's glory, his righteousness obliges him to pour out wrath upon our pride. Timothy and Paul and Timothy and Peter both said that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This deadly sin of pride, and I think for a lot of us, we're never more vulnerable than we're full when we're full of pride. Charles Stanley said it this way, no one enjoys feeling weak, isn't that true? whether it's emotionally, spiritually, or physically, there is something within the human spirit that wants to resist the thought of weakness. Many times this is nothing more than our human pride at work. Just as weakness carries great potential for strength, pride carries an equally great potential for defeat. Isn't that true? Isn't it interesting how pride is is tasteless, odorless, and sizeless, but yet it's the hardest thing to swallow, isn't it? Our pride. And it leads to all kinds of evil. To me, one of the great stories we find in Scripture that sort of illustrate that is with King David. It's to me, when King David was at his greatest with height of popularity and power in his pride, he did, I believe, his greatest sin. A lot of us think of Bathsheba as his greatest sin, but I want to challenge us this morning to think a little bit differently. David was a great man of God, right? He took on Goliath with a, with a, with a uh, slingshot and a rock. And he, you know, the, the people out there were singing songs about his great military triumphs. He killed 10,000 while Saul only killed 1,000. They would write songs about him. I don't know about you. I haven't heard any songs about me or Jason or John except maybe three blind mice, I don't know. But they were singing his praises. And in the midst of doing those things, when he took power, because of his pride, a great price was paid by the nation of Israel. See, when Bathsheba, he sinned with Bathsheba, he was, I think, guilty of what John talks about in 1 John, about the lust of the eyes. He saw her, And then he wanted her, and then the lust of the flesh says, I got to have her, and then he took her, and he sinned. He committed adultery, right? Then, on top of that, he deceived everybody and lied about it, and then to continue to cover up, he murdered, right? And so when you look about that whole sin with Bathsheba, which is the sin that everybody knows David for, really, at the end of the day, four people died for that, right? Uriah lost his life, the baby And then because of that, God brought strife into his family, and Amnon died, and eventually Absalom. Four people. But late in David's reign, it says this in 1 Chronicles 12, it says that then Satan stood against Israel. He's always against the things of God and the people of God. He says in verse 1, he says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel, to take a survey, right? 
take a census. To me, when you think about it, because David did this, 70,000 Israelites lost their life because he was proud of what he had accomplished, and he wanted to number it. He wanted to put a qualification on it, quantify his kingdom. To me, I think that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. Isn't that true? And what's wrong with a census anyways? What's the big deal? Moses used to do census all the time. See, but when Moses did a census, what he would call is for every male over the age of 20 to come in and give a half shekel. They called it atonement money or ransom money. And it was a reminder that God had purchased Israel, that God had paid a price for Israel. So every year he did that, these males over 20 would have to bring in half a shekel to remind them that God paid a price for their freedom, that God paid a price for the nation of Israel. See, Moses was focused on God and glorifying God, what God has done. When David took the census, it was about him and his glory and his greatness. John Maxwell said there's two kinds of pride, both good and bad. Good pride represents our dignity and self-respect. Bad pride is a deadly sin of superiority that reeks of conceit and arrogance. Isn't that true? It's interesting because even David's chief general, Joab, says this about David taking the census. He, he said, but, when, but he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because he favored them. For the king's command was abhorrent to Job, Joab. In other words, he found it detestable that he had to go do this thing sort of quantify his glory. He knew it was an offense to God, and he spared part of Israel. To me, there are, no, there are, are so many empty, there, none are so empty as those who are full of themselves. When I'm full of myself, I make a pretty small package. It's amazing because T.S. Eliot said this, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. It's interesting, when David sinned against Bathsheba, his cry was to Nathan was, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, when David sinned by taking the census, he says to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. Isn't that amazing? I've sinned greatly that I have done this thing. He got caught up in his pride. And like D.L. Moody, I had had more trouble with myself than any other man. It's interesting, I think pride, when it comes to the Christian life, I think affects Christians the most. We get prideful in our self-righteousness. We get prideful in the things that we've accomplished in the Lord. I always find it interesting how many, when somebody says, well, I led them to the Lord, or I led that person to the Lord, I'm thinking, well, what did you do? <laughs> God is the one who saves, right? Or people who take pride in what they give. Oh, I gave this, I gave that, I did this. Well, who gave you so that you can give back to God? It's amazing all the things we take pride in, right? It's that, it's that bad sense of pride that Maxwell was talking about because we get caught up with who we are and not the fact that God blessed us the ability to do anything. David wasn't the only one that was subject to that. 
the deadly sin of pride, and I think you're no, no, more vulnerable when you have pride than anything else. King Uzziah was an example. He was a young man when he came to rule Israel. He was 16, and he ruled for 52 years. And the Bible says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, and he did many great things. He was a great warrior. He fortified the cities. The Bible said he built king, he, built, he reinforced cities. He built strong towers, such to the fact that his enemies were afraid of him, just like David. But then later in life, he sinned against God by walking into the presence of God into the temple, which he shouldn't do. But he was so full of pride, he thought he should go before the Lord. And this is what it says in Chronicles 26, 16. It says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. To his destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Isn't that interesting? Prideful. God opposes. James said this in, in chapter 4. But he gives, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Isn't that interesting? That word opposes, where it says opposes the proud, is really a military word. And what it really means is a full army is ready for battle. In other words, he's saying that God opposes that all of God's power comes against those who are living and existing and doing in their own pride, in their own self. And when it says submit, that's another military term, which means to voluntarily rank yourself under an authority. See that picture? God opposes those who bring themselves up to a, a level where they steal glory from God. We are to submit under his authority, understand that everything that we have comes from him. This building, whatever money we have in the bank, whatever people are here, whatever we have comes from God. It wasn't the byproduct of Jason or myself or John or the Bible study teachers or anybody else. It's God. And we should thank him and be grateful for all that he does. It's, imagine, it's, it's amazing in the midst of ministry how many people think that they have a better idea of what should happen in the church and paramountly make that an issue that could divide the body of Christ. To me, the devil uses pride. We all have it. We all think we're right. We all think we've got where we should be or what we should do or what the pastor should preach on, what music should be played, how we should dress, how the place should look. Pride. To me, when it comes to God and Satan, there is no middle ground, none. You cannot defeat the demons you flirt with. You can't. John said friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Jesus was clear. If you exalt yourself, he will humble you. He will bring you down. The greatest example in scripture about this was Lucifer himself. As Jason talked about, one of those three archangels, right? 
If you go to Isaiah chapter 14, we looked at his humbling, his destruction. He says before the throne, he says, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. I will, I will, I will. Never thy will. It's a difference between him and Christ. The devil is all about him, but Jesus was all about God. In the garden, when faced with a decision, what did he say? Thy will be done. It wasn't his will. He says, Father, thy will be done. It's interesting how many times we place our will, our wants, our needs, our desires, our plans above that of God's. I get it. Sometimes we don't like where God's taken us or what God's doing us or where he's placed us or who he's put us with. We got to trust him for the plan. Satan wants you to say, I will, but we have to honor and glorify God by saying, thy will. Humility isn't weakness. It is true spiritual strength because we make our declaration on God, his power, (coughs) his sovereign hand. To me, you're never stronger than when you're the weakest and standing in God's will for your life. The truth is this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven could ever live in you. Pride must die in you. Nothing of heaven can ever live in you. And we wonder why we struggle. A lot of times it's because we fear, right? The Bible tells us not to fear not. It's interesting because I got a great word picture this week. There's a little garden outside of where my office is at the hospital Every once in a while, I'll go out there uh, for a little bit and just take a little time to meditate. When I went out there, I noticed from my window there was a hummingbird out there. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to go out there and check out the hummingbird, right? And when I walked out, now hummingbirds, what, about that big, right? And so as I walked up to the hummingbird, all of a sudden the hummingbird recognized I was in his space, and he came at me. I don't know if it was a him or a her. And of course, he's this big, I'm this big, and the first thing I do is take off running, Right? Because I'm thinking, man, this, I'm thinking, how bold, how courageous, this little bird this big who couldn't really do anything to me, maybe peck my eyes out, I don't know, <clears throat> but couldn't really do much to me. I could swat it with one hand and destroy it, and yet it made me fearful. You know why? Because I wasn't thinking about what I have in comparison to what he had but I couldn't believe how bold and brazen he was to take on a a being a hundred times its size. You know what? It was my character was the issue. And so it is with us when we go to battle the enemy, right? We have all this great armament, this great tools to be able to defend ourselves. And what, what blows us away is the boldness and the brashness of the enemy. And we, we, we shriek back in our fear. And we find ourselves paralyzed, able to do nothing, but at times just to succumb to the enemy's schemes. 
It's interesting because I read the passage. We all read that passage in Ephesians 6. And one of the things as an army guy, I noticed that when you put on the armor of God, you have no rear defense, right? There's nothing for your backside. There's no really armament for the back of you. Part of that is because God wants us pressing forward, right? We're going to take the offense into the world. That's one thing. But more important thing is, it says this as the passage closes, praying at all times after you put on the whole armor of God, praying at, in, at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Did you get that? Praying, making supplications in perseverance. In other words, it's not going to be easy to put on the armor of God and take strength. You've got to learn how to wear it. You've got to learn how to use it, right? You've got to learn how to be prepared. But you're going to have issues come against you, so you need to be ready to be able to do battle. Because every inch, every second is at risk. It's interesting. Because when you read Scripture, one of the greatest comforts for me was that the Bible says, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I don't need any armor on my back. The God of Israel be your rear guard. He says that the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In other words, I don't have to worry about what's behind me. God's got that covered when I'm walking in truth and praying for his power to protect me and doing his will. It's amazing how nothing can defeat me. That doesn't mean nothing will come at me. But nothing can defeat me. Do you know that the mountain lion in the United States is the number one predator of humans? Did you know that? The number one predator of humans is a mountain lion. It's an interesting thing. It always attacks from the rear. All is this prey from the rear. You know why? Because it's able to jump on their backs and its big teeth are able to sink into the vertebrae of that animal or prey and it cuts off its oxygen, right? It sort of suffocates the animal. And I was... Watching, as I watch on TV, I love to watch all the nature shows, and this one guy is talking about how he was doing some filming and doing a story, and he was looking, as he was coming down to this beautiful lake, he saw a mountain lion. So he waited for the mountain lion to drink and then take off. And then he went down there, and he was, you know, photographing his paw prints and some other things, and as he looked up, he noticed not too far away two eyeballs behind a bush. Guess what? It was the mountain lion. And he said, all of a sudden, things got real. He said he pulled out his knife, he dropped his camera, and he waited. And the mountain lion slowly comes out. And as he's standing there waiting, he knows his only defense is not to turn and run. That's that's what he wants you to do. In fear, he wants you to turn and run because that's when he's at his greatest ability to, to, to kill you and destroy you. So he just had a standoff. He said, my eyes were fixed on him. His eyes were fixed on me. He tried moving around me, and every time he moved, I turned, and I turned, and I turned. And for 15 minutes, he tried to figure out how to get to me, and I kept moving, standing my ground, holding my little knife out there, staring him down and letting him know, you're not going to get behind me. And guess what? After 15 minutes, he got tired of it and left. Sort of like Scripture says, right? It's interesting, we don't think about the power that we have. A.W. Tozer made this statement, which really occupied my mind all week, and he said this, that Christians don't know how to live in lion country. After a difficult time in his ministry, he said this, but I will tell you something. 
It is a delightful thing when you know that you are close enough to the adversary that you can hear him roar. Too many Christians never get in the lion country at all. Isn't that true? We're so afraid we don't know how to put our armor and we don't want to take on the lion who's looking to devour somebody because we're afraid to be devoured. Thank God Paul wasn't that way. Paul lived in the lion's den. Paul knew how to stand his ground and wear the armor. But listen to what happened to Paul. We're too afraid to go out of our houses, to go next door, to witness to our neighbors, or go to lunch with somebody at work and witness to them, or to talk to somebody at the gas station, in the restaurant, anywhere we go, to tell them about Jesus Christ. Because you know what? Our shoes aren't fitted with the gospel of peace. We're not ready to witness. We're not ready to get in the lion's den and tangle with the enemy who doesn't want anybody to see the gospel of grace. That's the calling of the church. That's the calling of the saints. Here's what Paul says. Listen to this. Just when you think you may have it tough. He asks this question. He's talking to the church at Crithen. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. In other words, that normally killed people, just the 40 lashes less one. A lot of times it was the, the, the actual lashes that killed people, but a lot of times it was the disease and the infections that took place after they had the 40 lashes. And he had it done five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often with no food, in cold and exposure. <clears throat> Do you think he lived in the lion's den? To me, I think that sometimes what the enemy does is in our pride tries to get in between people in the, in the, in the church of God to try to turn us on one another over the stupidest things over things that are preferences. It's one thing to do it over the word of God and, 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 and doctrine, but anything else should always be submissive to what's going on. He says, I had to fight false brothers. I had to fight my own brothers, my own countrymen. Apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us forever, knows that I am not lying. I think part of the problem is we have it too easy. We have it too easy for a couple reasons. I think the biggest reason is because we're not willing to wield the sword of truth and put on the full armor, and go to battle, and divide the things of this world. To me, that we should draw our weapons and be prepared for battle, to walk into the lion's den each and every day, because every second counts, every inch is being contested, and say to our enemies, to say to our situations, the Lord is my light and salvation. I will not fear, for greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 
For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I will humble myself before the Lord. You will lift me up in due time. That I know. Because I am called by your name. I will humble myself and pray and seek your face and hear from heaven. You will forgive my sins and heal our land. I will give thanks to the Lord God for he is good. Your mercies endure forever. They're new every day. He is the giver of good gifts and his love sustains us. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, O God. My whole belonging longs for you in the dry and weary land that I live. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and I will follow you wherever you lead. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift my hands. I will exalt you, O King of kings, Lord of lords. Not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because your love and faithfulness, thy will, thy will be done of great and mighty God. For nothing of eternal value happens without you for you and you alone are the resurrection and the life whoever believes in you though he die he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in you shall never die the power of the word of god the sword of truth how prevalent is it in your life i want to challenge you this morning that if you were called on the carpet this morning to be thrown into lion country, are you ready? Are you going to pull out your Swiss army knife with the scissors? Or do you have a sword that's fastened to the belt of truth, that's protected by the breastplate of righteousness, that's shown through the helmet of salvation that you belong to God. You're one of his soldiers and his army and you're here to do battle in his name and you don't have to worry about your rear guard because he's God and all you have to do is what? Fight the good fight. Get over yourself. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus, right? What's Jesus doing? Let's get on board with that and what Jesus wants to do is what? Seek and save the lost. That's our calling. To be engaged. To be active. To be battle ready because we're battle tested and we understand where power comes from. Not from us, but from him. To put aside our pride in who we are and trust in who he is for the glory of his name. Amen. Everybody, let's bow our heads for a moment as we close. I want to ask you all right where you're sitting right now. If you think you need to spend more time in God's word because your sword's kind of dull, with everybody's head down and eyes closed, I'd ask you to raise your hand if that's the case for you. Hands all over. Hands all over. I want to challenge you this morning to bring that to God. I want to challenge you this morning to recognize that God equips us for the battle. He equips us to take on lions. 
And all of us have lines in our lives. And all of us get on our pride and we say, oh, no, not me. I don't have to worry about that. Oh, me, I'm not going to go down and kneel before God because, you know what, I don't want anybody to know that I got issues or I got problems. We all got issues. We all got problems. To me, that's one of the greatest things of pride that we have is not willing to confess our sins before God, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Knowing that when we get into God's work that we have to just see what God is doing. I want to challenge you this morning that the throne and the altar of grace is available to you. There may be areas in your life where your pride has rose up and you know, exalted you above others or someone else, even your wife, your husband. And it's brought havoc into your relationships. We're not able to forgive and we're not able to forget and we're not able to, Lord, just get along. Lord, I just ask that your hand be upon us all. You help us, Lord, to realize that we all do battle together, side by side, shield to shield, sword to sword, and we take on this wicked world around us where the devil's fighting for every inch and every second. We ask you to call us to action, call us to attention, that we may be your men and women to go out and do your work, Lord, to a world that is lost, to a country that is divided, to a people who are just antithetical to the word of God. That we would bring your truth because we know it and we live it in a way that transforms people. For it's your battle, it's your work, we ask you to use us. And Lord, if there's anyone in there this morning that's never looked to you as their Savior, never realized they're in, a, in lion country, and there's one out there that's looking to devour them, if they've never recognized their need of you as a Savior, I would ask right where they're sitting right now, Lord, your conviction come upon them. And they would ask you to come in their life and to take over your life, take over their life, Lord, and just forgive them of their sin. And Lord, we'd ask that you would do that and they would share it with someone and we would rejoice and we would bring them into our fold and get them into a growth group to teach them your truth in such a way that would give them the ability to be battle ready for the day of evil is coming. Help us to be equipped. Help us to be, Lord, not fearful for we know who you are and we know how you've equipped us. Help us to live in the confidence of your strength, Lord, in your army. And I just pray this for all of us. Amen.